0: You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership.
1: Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. This is episode 43. from technical expert to leader. Such a common journey across organizations and industries. A specialist who performs well in their job finds themselves being promoted, bumped up the org chart, and in a position to influence the work of many. But, as anyone who's ever been in that position will tell you, being great at doing, no matter how complex or skillful, does not necessarily equip you for a leadership role. My guest in this episode is Michelle Gibbings. Michelle is the author of a brand new book, Step Up. It addresses critical questions around the journey of doer to influencer. During our conversation, Michelle and I talk through the common challenges so many of us face as we take that decisive leap in our professional journey. Then, the common traps for new leaders, how do they plot a thoughtful and deliberate course that will allow them to rise above the noise at work and be noticed, become influential and lead in a way that fosters trust and respect from the people around them. If you're stepping up in your career, planning your next move, making the leap from technical expert to leader and influencer, this is the episode for you. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Michelle Gibbings. Michelle Gibbings, welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. Hi, David. How are you? I'm very well, Michelle. Hey, thanks so much for joining me. I know this is an ungodly hour on a Monday night. We're both really busy at the moment, and this is about the only time we could line up. So I really appreciate you joining me and taking time out of what is probably your downtime.
0: Look, my pleasure. I have done interviews and podcasts at worse time zones than this, so this is actually okay. <laughs>
1: Oh, that's good. I'm pleased to hear it. Hey, Michelle, I'm really interested to talk to you about the book that you've written. I think that you've tapped into a really interesting element of leadership, the idea of technical experts stepping out from their area of speciality and beginning a deliberate and considered journey towards effective leadership.
0: Oh, thank you. And look, part of the development of the book was a reflection on my own career, but also work that I've been doing with people where you can see people who are just brilliant at their technical craft, but they'll struggle at a certain level to get their voice heard or to be able to get progress and traction and to build collaborative networks because they don't necessarily know how to navigate a complex organisation and how to position themselves to get impact and to influence. And so the book was really a desire to provide a guide and some ideas on how to better do that.
1: It's a funny beast, isn't it? It, It's the habit of organizations and institutions to promote people who are really good at doing something to lead people to do those things once they've reached a certain level of competency. But as I sort of said in my opening question, it's so different. Being a technical genius doesn't necessarily make you a good leader. It doesn't necessarily rule you out, of course, but you do have to go on what I described as that very deliberate and considered path towards leadership.
0: Oh, I agree. And I, you know, there's that whole argument is a person born a leader or do they learn to become a leader? And I'm mm. firmly in the camp that you can learn to become a leader. And if I look at my own career, when I first started out, I look at some of the things that I did and, you know, I kind of shudder in horror.
1: But, you know, <laughs> it was
0: done out of naivety. And, you know, I would look at other people around me and think, oh, maybe that's what I should do. And then it was almost trial and error. You'd try things and go, oh, that didn't. Work, maybe I should try something else. And then I was very fortunate to work with some amazing leaders and I looked at what they did and how they built strong teams. And I realized that their role was to be a leader, their role was not to do the doing. And they weren't technical experts in the teams that they were leading, they understood what the team was doing and they were there to help guide and build the strategy of the team, but they were very much there to lead the team, to support the team, and to really help each individual on the team to get to where that person needed to get to. And I looked at that and took so much away in terms of how I then led future teams.
1: Michelle, I'm going to put you on the spot. I would love for you to tell us about one of those things that you did as a young leader or a new leader that you look back on now and you feel highly embarrassed about. A couple of episodes ago, I had Michelle McQuaid on the podcast, actually another Michelle. And I shared with her a story that I frequently remember. I, I think I remember. I think of it at least once a week from my early days as a leader and I shudder at that experience. So I'd love to hear your story. When you talk about regretting some behaviors as a leader, what pops to mind?
0: Look, it's interesting. The things that pop to mind are often the little things. You know, you wouldn't Mm -hmm. step into the difficult conversations. You'd send an email or back in my early days, a memo. (laughs) (laughs) You're giving yourself away. I know. I've just aged myself, haven't I? But I learned that as a leader, you needed to step into the difficult conversations and support your team. And that would sometimes mean that you would have conversations that might make someone feel uncomfortable, but that you were doing it with good intent. And I think when I was younger, you know, you wouldn't want to have those difficult conversations because, well, you wouldn't know where they would land. And so rather than make anyone feel uncomfortable, you'd rather just not do it. Whereas actually having the conversation early was a much better thing to do because you'd end up with a better outcome. And I think as I got older, I also learned empathy. I think when I was younger, you know, if things didn't quite work out, I would be less forgiving. Whereas as you get older, you realize, well, everyone makes mistakes. And having compassion and empathy for what's going on for an individual and being able to support them through it would actually mean you'd end up with better outcomes longer term.
1: You mentioned not being willing to step into the difficult conversations. That takes so much courage and confidence, doesn't it, to be able to do that?
0: It does and I think it also takes practice. So it doesn't Mm. mean it's easy. I often say to people having a difficult conversation is difficult for both sides. So it's difficult for the person who might be hearing the news and it's also difficult for the person who's delivering it. But there's nothing worse than having it delivered in a way where you can tell that the person isn't really saying what they really want to say and it's all being couched in this kind of a language where it's ambiguous And you really don't know what the person's trying to say. And I remember years ago, someone describing it to me, and this is going to be a very uneloquent way of saying it. They said it's a bit like the shit sandwich. And I said, what's the shit sandwich? They said, well, it's a bit (laughs) like when you get feedback and what the person does, they say, oh, look, you're really good, but you should do this. And then you're really good on this, but you should do that. So everything's kind of, here's a good thing just to make you feel okay. Mm -hmm. And now I'm going to give you something negative. As opposed, and it's more
1: about feeling the person who's delivering the message, helping them to feel okay. Really,
0: exactly, exactly. As opposed to really having a conversation around, hey, what's working, and how do you feel things are going, and how can I support you? What else do you need? And then also being honest about if things aren't working, to say, hey, look, you know, I'm sensing that something's not working here. Tell me what's going on for you.
1: And it's so said, true. Well, if you're in the middle of a difficult conversation, the last thing you want is to think this is bad enough as it is, and I know you're not even giving it to me straight.
0: Oh, look, absolutely. And people read between the lines. But what I've also learned as well is you know, the more the team knows you and the more they trust you, the more they'll do for you as well. You build so much loyalty in a team when there's cohesion. And I think when I was younger, I had this weird notion that or oh, I can't be friends with anyone who reports to me because, you know, there's mm. got to be boundaries. And, I, you know, yes, there is a sense of, you know, you can't play favourites and all of that kind of stuff. But I realised as I got, got older, the more you understand your team, the more you understand where they come from, that you've got an understanding of their interests, you know, whether they've got two kids and a dog and all of that kind of stuff, it just builds connections. And when you build connections yeah. and they know you and you know them, it, just makes work a far nicer place to work. That whole
1: concept that Stephen Covey describes as the emotional bank account. And I know you're a Stephen Covey fan because you referenced him at least once in your book.
0: I did. I remember hearing him speak when I was very early in my management days. And it's interesting because if you go back to his books, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, and that book would have to be, I don't know, 25 years old? 25
1: years old. It is, Yeah.
0: Yeah. And it's still relevant. You look at it and Mm -hmm. go, what he's teaching, none of it's earth shattering. You look at it and go, all of this just makes complete sense. And so it's interesting. I look at a lot of the older sort of leadership books that were written sort of 25, 30 years ago, and a lot of them still hold resonance today because our leadership styles, you know, we're working in a different environment and it's a much more complex and ambiguous environment. But all of those things that we learned 30 years ago or, or that were around 30 years ago are still relevant today.
1: We're still human beings, aren't we? When I asked you about your bad memories, you talked about regretting something that you didn't do rather than regretting something that you did to. It's a bit of a truism, isn't it? As we're, we're so much more likely to regret things that we didn't step up and do rather than to regret things that we did step into and maybe bumble around a little bit.
0: I think for me, it's probably sometime goes on both sides. I mean, I can distinctly remember an episode at work where I had a conversation with someone, it was a Friday afternoon, and I should just never have gone there. And it was, I was walking out of the office, they kind of following me as I walked out of the office, which meant then what I said to them, I was not in the best frame of mind. Other people heard what I said, which was just not good. And I look at that and mm. go, Wow, you know, talk about being in your wise one. I was not in my wise one. And I, when I work with people these days, because there's so much knowledge now around understanding how the brain reacts when it's stressed and when we're tired, that the awareness and how you need to be really aware of how you're feeling in any given moment so that you can regulate that. And I certainly know as I've gotten older, My knowledge in that area has grown and I'm much more aware of how I'm feeling and what I'm tuned into and what I'm not tuned into so that I'm able to regulate my behavior, but also be really conscious of, wow, how's this feeling for me right now? And if I'm not feeling okay, why am I not feeling okay? So taking a much more curious approach to things as opposed to being quite judgmental and very quick to come to a conclusion about things.
1: Oh, fantastic. So I did get you to tell us a story about something you really regretted. And it was something that you did that you regretted. That's great. I'm glad to hear that you make mistakes as well, Michelle. Now you mentioned earlier that you've learned, and I read in your book, that you've learned so much from some of the good leaders that you've had through your career, but you also acknowledge that you have learned a lot by the bad leaders. Tell us about that. When you think back through your career, what are some of the qualities of leaders that you really remember, whether it's for the the positive or the negative?
0: I remembered a lady I worked with many years ago and she said to me, you know, Michelle, she said, you can come to work every day and you can work really hard. And she goes, I know delivering good output is really important to you and getting the results. And that's fantastic. But she said, when you leave this role, someone else will come in, they'll do it differently. They might do it better. All that work that you do will be forgotten. She said, Mm -hmm. but what won't be forgotten is how you treat people. She said, how you treat the people around you, and more importantly, how you develop your team. That's what they will remember. And that is the only- That's a
1: great piece of advice. Oh,
0: and it is. And she said, it's the only legacy you have in an organization. The work you do is not your legacy. Your legacy is how you impact those around you. And that really stuck with me because I had always, you know, I've been brought up in an environment where it's all about the work. And yes, the people are part of the work, but it's almost like the people were the adjunct to the work as opposed to the people being the work, if you understand what I mean, that your focus as a leader is developing people. It's really bringing out the best in them. And I look at her and I think my career was so shaped by the opportunity I had to work with her. And she took a chance on me and she encouraged me and pushed me into areas where other people would have gone, oh, you know, Michelle doesn't have experience in that. And she was like, yep, that's fine. She's smart. She's savvy. She'll figure it out.
1: That is great advice because we all know that people will forget most of what you tell them and they'll forget some of what you do, but they will never forget the way that you made them feel.
0: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Sorry, I was going to say, so when I go back to that earlier example about what I regret for my earlier career, that person who was involved in that conversation in the corridor, that's how they will remember me.
1: Yes, no matter what else you did in the time that you worked with them. Absolutely. So what about the bosses or the leaders that you've had in the past that have taught you lessons through the negative where you looked at them and you thought, that is how I don't want to be as a leader?
0: Typically, it was people who didn't care about those around them. They were so absorbed with their own importance and what they Mm. needed and would fail to notice people around them. I remember one person I worked with and we were having a Christmas function and he was chatting to someone and he was asking the person who they were and what they did. And I thought, wow, you walk past this person every day to get to your desk. They're literally not even 50 meters away from your desk and you have never noticed them. Yeah. And you go, wow, what does that say?
1: Yeah, that's... That's so true. Wow. And and, and I gee, I, I think back and I know that I've been guilty about of that in the past of having people that I work with that I don't really engage with on a meaningful level until something like a Christmas party or drinks or something like that. Jeez, that's a wake-up call for so many of us, Michelle. That that recollection that you have there. Hey, let's bring it back to the the real intent of your book. I love hearing about people's leadership experiences and their own stories, but what you're trying to really tap into here is that journey someone goes on when they've stepped out of their specialty, their area of technical expertise, and they begin this journey to leadership. Now, one of the interesting things here, of course, is that we all started as technical experts. None of us graduated from university or finished our trade or whatever it is that we did as a youngster and began life in our professional career as a leader. That's something that happens down the track for almost everyone, I guess. So really your book is for everyone because of that. We were all technical experts and at some point began our journey as a leader.
0: Look, that's correct. And it's interesting because the book's broken into two halves and the first half is really focused on the person as an individual and them understanding themselves, their mindset, how they make decisions, what's their sort of ethical decision-making process, talks about bias, and also getting them to understand how they get things done, so how productive and how agile they are. And the second half of the book is focused on the individual within an organizational context or an organizational system. And it's interesting because I've had people who have said to me, oh, you know, Why did you spend so much time on the individual piece? I would have thought you'd spend more time just on how does the person have impact within an organization. And the logic is if you don't understand yourself, it's impossible to have influence because you're not taking the time to consider how you're reacting to things or what assumptions you have that are driving not only thought processes about people, but thought processes around decisions that you're making and so the understanding of yourself is absolutely pivotal to being able to understand other people and understand how an organization works.
1: Absolutely, being part of that truly interdependent relationship or situation is the end goal, but in order to get there, in order to be a worthwhile member of a team like that, we need to really own our own independence first, don't we? And your your book does a terrific job of taking the reader along that journey. So, when we think of someone who is They could have had a 10, 20, 25-year career as a technical expert, and they step into this brave new world of leadership. Michelle, what are some of the most common pitfalls, the common traps that an individual might fall into once they find themselves leading a, a team of people?
0: The biggest trap is that they don't talk enough. So I've seen situations where people will move into a role and literally they go and close themselves off into an office and Don't communicate with the team and don't involve them in decisions. And the best way to build an engaged and collaborative team is to get people involved, to find out their ideas, to find out what their strengths are, to really get a sense of how the team's going to come together. How do you bring that kind of collective energy so that you're getting greater output based on the fact that the team knows how they want to work together and Often what will happen is when leaders move into a technical, so move that sort of technical role into a leadership role, they think that they need to have all the answers because Mm. they're used to having all the answers. And I often say to people these days, we are living in such a changing and complex world. It's impossible for one person to have all the answers for everything, but it can be hard as a leader to say, I don't know, or I need to think about that. And I really encourage people to take a really curious approach to things. And to, you know, if you don't have all the answers, that's actually okay. And that's where the wisdom of the group comes in because you often end up with better ideas and better outcomes if you've got diversity of thought and diversity of process, as opposed to just having one person making all the
1: decisions. It's such an interesting point in someone's career, isn't it, when they realize that, Being a leader doesn't just mean doing more of your technical work or being the expert in your technical work, that the idea of leadership actually becomes your core competency. That's your technical area at some point in your journey.
0: Absolutely. And also when you move into a leadership role, everything you do is constantly on display and Mm. you start in this interesting realm of the whole perception game. You know, people always talk about perception as reality But what your view of your behavior is versus what someone else sees it as can be two quite contrary things. And so if you're not aware of how people see you and how people perceive you, that can be really challenging because you can end up in a situation where you think you're doing something with good intent, and it may actually very well be with good intent, but people for whole raft of reasons will put a different spin on it. And they will put a different interpretation, which can lead to a whole raft of messy complications in the team.
1: It's an incredible realisation for us to come to. I can't remember who it is. Maybe it's Covey again. I hate to overquote Covey here, but it's a quote along the lines of everyone, no, I'm the only person in the world who judges myself by my intentions. Everyone else judges me by my behaviours. I'm pretty sure that's Covey. Yeah, it's such a great, it's a powerful concept, isn't it? Because we all move through life and no matter what we actually do and the actual impact we have, we're judging ourselves internally by what we meant to do or what we would have done if we had the time or the energy or or the intellect or whatever it might be whereas others are simply judging us on what they see of us and through the filter of all of their own experiences and their own bias amazing realization for a leader and to be able to tap into that and the the people who are around you and what they're seeing of you is that moment how do people do that though Michelle how do you step into a world and not only realize people are seeing you so differently than the way you see yourself, how do you work out how they're seeing you?
0: The only way you can do it is to get feedback. And Mm -hmm. often that involves, you know, doing 360 degree feedbacks. And there's a myriad of different leadership tools that you can use and to work with a good coach. I'm a massive advocate for coaches, but it's about finding the right coach. I was very fortunate through large tracks of my career to have a coach and they really helped me see things from a different perspective and to kind of step outside and look down on how people would see me and perceive what I was doing and to question myself and to go, wow, but that's not what I meant. And they were like, well, yeah, that may not be what you meant, but this is how it's playing out. So is that where you want to land? So to actually kind of challenge you as well. So, you know, in a, you know, sometimes you can get some really tough feedback and it can hurt. I often say to people, you know, feedback, there's that whole sense of, you know, you don't necessarily have to agree with all of the feedback, but you kind of have to put it through a sieve and work out what do you do with it? Because often the feedback that most hurts usually has a grain of truth in there somewhere. And so that point of doing reflection as well, a reflection is a really important part of the learning process where you sit down and go, wow, why did I feel like that? And why did they think that that was like that and what does that actually mean and how much does this matter to me? Because often when you really want to change, it has to matter to you. And so working out the reason why you want to change and why this matters, that's going to be the real impetus for you to drive and change and improve your leadership style.
1: Michelle, I had a guest on the show just last week, Grant Dale. He was responsible for a massive rollout of a leadership program through the Navy when they were trying to refresh the organizational culture. And he said one of the pivotal moments in his career was actually doing a 360-degree feedback where he got for the very first time this honest, you know, whole perspective on himself and the way people viewed him. And he said it was it was an incredible experience, but. As an aside, he also said that he took it home to his wife and showed it to her. This thing that he saw as groundbreaking in his career, and she looked at it and said, "I could have told you that."
0: Look, I always say to people that I work with when we're doing three hundred and sixty degrees, I said, "Show your partner, yeah, and see what they say." Because also, it's about normalizing and validating. Because sometimes when people get feedback, they can look at it, and we we all do this. You know, sometimes we will justify stuff to make ourselves feel better about something. But if a loved one can say, well, yeah, I can actually see that. I can see how that could play out. I mean, I'm very lucky. My husband's amazing and he's very good at being able to take the other person's perspective. And so often, you know, back in my career when I was working in corporate, I would talk things through with him and he'd be able to go, well, hang on, maybe it meant this or maybe it meant that, and then that would be enough for me to reflect on it and sometimes go back to the people involved in the conversation to actually inquire, you know, where were we coming from with this? What do we want to do with it? And so I learned through my career that you know just because you've had one conversation doesn't mean you can't go back for a second round. Whether it's a half-day Energizer session or a comprehensive team and leadership program, Team Guru's unique approach could be just what the doctor ordered for your organization.
1: Michelle, I, I want to talk to you about the idea of the values that we hold as individuals and the way they reflect in the way that we lead teams, you talked a little bit in your book about this idea that we think we have certain values until it comes to the crunch, and then we exhibit behaviors that absolutely don't reflect the value that we espouse. Talk us through how we go about getting a true understanding of what our values really are. Is it a case of judging ourselves under pressure?
0: I think it's part of that, and look, it's interesting because there's lots of different psychological terms that you can use, you know, things like fundamental attribution error, where if something goes wrong for another person, it's their fault because they're lazy or because they're not smart enough or because they're not organized. Whereas if we do something and it doesn't work out, we have mm. this self-protection mechanism where, mm. well, it's the tool or it was the system or it was the process. And I often find with values, you know, good people can do bad things. And I've been long fascinated by how that happens. And I often use the term culturalization because what you do see happen to some people is they will get into an organization and everybody acts in a certain way and it is contrary to their normal mode of behavior. And if it's completely contrary, they'll leave. But if for some reason they can't leave and they kind of get captured by the culture, they start to assume and mm. take on those types of behaviors where it's actually against their values, but they stop yeah. seeing that as being not the way they would want to behave because everybody else is doing it. And so it can be quite tricky. And often what happens is you'll see people, it's like this sense of entitlement, you know, just a little bit here and then a little bit here, and then it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And often that can come with seniority because as you move up through the ranks, you get people around you who keep telling you how great you are. And all these things start happening. That often people will start to bend the rules a little bit because it just, well, you know, they've worked really hard and they've got there. So that's they'll think that that's okay. So you know, I think with values, it really is. I always say to people, it's that newspaper test. If you're going to read it on the front page of the newspaper, how would you feel if that was actually happening? And if it doesn't feel like that, it's you know, you'd be happy to tell people publicly you were doing it. And if it doesn't feel right, trust your gut instinct, it's not the right thing to do. And if you're in an organization where your values are not aligned, get out. I often say to people, Mm. sometimes there is the right time to vote yourself off the island. (laughs)
1: Look, I I love that very overused cliche, but it's it's a cliche for a reason because it makes so much sense to me. The idea that if you have a really firm understanding of what your true values as an individual are, They can get you out of so many tricky spots. If you use your values, that set of words that that are meaningful to you as a filter for all the tough decisions that you have to make in your life or in your career, in your work, it can really make some potentially difficult situations almost easy. You know, you just ask yourself, what would my values say here? But geez, it takes discipline to do that. And sometimes you're going to miss out on an easy option or an extra payday or getting credit for a piece of work that you didn't do. But using values as a filter for decision-making, I think is, is one of the most important things for leadership.
0: I absolutely agree. I think what happens though sometimes is people can get captured by an organization. And I remember years ago, someone telling me about an organization that they had been involved with and the engagement results for the organization, what typically would happen with most organizations is people come in and they're usually very highly engaged. And then over time, an individual's engagement might drop off as people get kind of used to the environment. It's like the honeymoon period wears off and then it'll get to a point where they'll then leave if the engagement drops off to a certain level. But in this particular organisation, even though the engagement levels would continue to drop, people would stay because they got paid so much more in that Mm organisation above the norm of other organisations. So they were captured by the money. And so it's interesting when people talk about, you know, people aren't motivated by money. And that's true. All the research shows people are not typically motivated by money, but people can construct a life where they get captured by the money. They've got a big Mm, mortgage. golden handcuffs. Well, exactly. They've got a big mortgage. They've got kids in private schools or whatever. They've got some lifestyle that they need to support. And so they might not like the organization or what it stands for or its values, but they stay there and that's when real problems start because internally for a person you get this disconnect you know they talk about cognitive dissonance where what you believe and what you do are two different things it's a very unhealthy place to be
1: yeah you're right we could we can do a lot of fooling ourselves when it comes to the money factor as you just described and i you and i before we recorded we both talked about our our time working in the mines as consultants and i remember a number of people telling me Out on the mines, hey. They said I came out here with a five-year plan, and that was 15 years ago. And they called it the golden handcuffs. I don't enjoy working here. I don't like the lifestyle. I don't like being away with from my kids. But we've got a mortgage, and we've got the kids in private schools. All those things that you said, and I am stuck here. And geez, it must be it must be difficult. And you know, when you talk about being in an organisation that just does not share your values, does not operate in a way that makes you feel good, but you feel trapped by the money that must eat away at your soul almost.
0: Oh, look, absolutely. And I often say to people, you know, I do a lot of coaching work and I always say to people, when you coach, you can't just coach on your work. Your personal life comes into it
1: Mm. and
0: really making deliberate decisions about how you save and spend money because money is about freedom. And I know when I left corporate and I, you know, I made a deliberate decision to leave corporate. I wanted to go off and do something else in terms of setting up my own business. And I had people who said to me, Oh, that's amazing, Michelle, but how can you afford to do that? And I said, because I constructed a lifestyle that allowed me to do it. I've always been a saver, not a spender. <laughs> and it makes, you know, it is, it, but it's about discipline and being really clear about your life goals and where you want to do. And for me, one of my big mottos in life is freedom and money and being able to, you know, have money in the bank. Gives you freedom. And I realize, you know, it's different things for different people. People have different personal circumstances and all of that kind of stuff. But often people live to their means, which means they spend more than they need to. They don't save enough.
1: Michelle, in one of the chapters in your book, you talk about unplugging your bias. I, I have a few questions around this. I know you do a lot of coaching. First of all, I'm really interested in. How accurate people usually are when they try and assess what their own bias is? And secondly, how do we get ahead around our own our true bias, the things that we carry around and work on them and, and open our minds to them and, and, and have them impact our behavior in a positive way?
0: I think it's very hard to actually self-assess your own bias unless you've got someone who is helping you do that. Because that awareness comes from someone sharing a different perspective. And so the most helpful way to understand where there's bias filtering into how decisions are being made or how you're thinking about things is having someone who's a trusted advisor or a coach or in a team environment where you can constructively challenge each other to go, well, hang on. Does that mean we're actually filtering out information if we think about it from that perspective, or are we only looking for information to confirm what we already know? So part Mm. of it is actually having a deliberate process in terms of how you make decisions, but it's always also having people in your life who will challenge you. And I often say to people that I work with that if there is someone who really annoys you at work, that's the person you need to spend more time with. Because if they're annoying you, there is something in how they think, something in how they process thoughts or make decisions that doesn't align with you. And so rather than sort of use the judgment of, oh, that person just annoys me, be curious about why it does and have conversations with them. Because you may find insights into ideas or things that you're working on that you'll start to see things from a different perspective. And if I go back to my husband, my husband's Indian, so he grew up in India and moved out to Australia when he was 17. And he has an amazing way of looking at the world in a very different way to how I can look at the world. And I share some of those stories in the book as well, because he can help challenge my own bias, because I'll be thinking about something, and he'll go, "But hang on, what about this? You're thinking about it from that perspective, not this perspective." So it really is important to have in your life people who you trust. And people who you know will challenge you, not just surrounding yourself with a whole heap of people who just say yes. Because yes can make you feel really good about yourself, but it's not going to help you be a better leader.
1: Michelle, I'm going to put you on the spot. I want you to tell us a lovely, gory story about someone that you've worked with. Don't name them, of course. You might get sued. Someone who had an idea of themselves and their own bias that just did not align with the reality that you learned while you're working with them. You must have come across some doozies.
0: God. I think the hardest thing is when you work with someone whose understanding of their own ability in their role is completely out of kilter with what it actually is. And I have worked with people who, when you're trying to give them feedback about their role, they only can see the good. They think they're (laughs) awesome. And so when you're trying to get- The Dunning-Kruger effect, hey? Oh, yeah. Wow. <laughs> and it's, it's hard because they then just see you as sort of like the devil incarnate because all you're trying to do is give them negative feedback, whereas you're trying to help them because you know that eventually they're going to come up, they're basically going to be blocked in their career and not get any further, but they literally cannot see that they need to improve in any way. That's a very hard person to work with. I would rather have someone- And you're the bearer.
1: No, go ahead. I'm sorry.
0: I was just going to say, I would rather work with someone who was open about how they make mistakes because then you can work with it. You know, Mm. It's great to be able to work with someone and help coach them and you can see the improvement and they're willing to give it a crack and they're going to try something and hey, it may not be perfect, but that's okay because they're willing to learn. But when you're working with someone who's got a completely fixed mindset- and they do not need, think they need to improve at all, it's almost impossible to change them.
1: It's nice to be positive, isn't it? But it obviously goes past a point where it's unconstructive and inability to reflect on yourself. Now, I mentioned in there just that Dunning-Kruger effect. The Dunning-Kruger effect, of course, is that phenomenon that allows people to go to an, on Australian Idol when they can't sing people who are living in a strange little environment where for some reason no one has ever given them the feedback about how bad a singer they are. so they, they grow up, they think that they're awesome because everyone tells them they're awesome or they might perform to a very small audience until this one moment in their life when all of a sudden they realize they're not as good as they thought they were. That's the Dunning-Kruger effect. Now, Michelle, we're about to move. I'm going to ask you some questions very shortly about the individual within the organization learning to influence across an organization. But before we do that, can you give us the cheat notes? If we're thinking about this individual ourselves stepping out from a technical area of expertise, beginning our leadership journey from everything that we've talked about today, what's the handful of things we should remember? What's the cheat notes?
0: The first thing is to really understand yourself. I always say start from the inside out. Spend time understanding. Have you got a fixed or a growth mindset? So I was talking about a, you know, a fixed mindset before, but you know that whole sense of do you see your intelligence as fixed or do you see that your intelligence is something that can be learned? Are you open to feedback? Are you open to being curious? Because to be a good leader, you really need to have that growth mindset There's also that sense around understanding that we're all biased and I think what often happens with bias is people go, that person over there is biased but I'm okay, whereas when you you accept that we're all biased, it makes it much easier to be open to constructive debate, to challenge, to looking at involving different people in the decision-making processes and. The other key piece with all of this as well is to be really clear about how you make progress in an organisation. Influential people get things done. And often what people equate influence with is power games and being Machiavellian. Whereas I say influence is about progress. It's about getting things done in an organisation. It's about having good intent It's building good stakeholder networks. It's understanding how you communicate with people and how you tailor that communication so that your message is heard. But it's not just about you talking; it's about listening. It's about being really clear about what does the other person need. How do I meet their needs so that I can then, over time, also have my needs met as well? And that comes into then negotiating, understanding how you negotiate. How do you build collaborative networks? How do you build a process so that you can negotiate an outcome where both people involved in the negotiation walk away feeling as though they've had their dignity intact, that's been a good process, and that the relationships are still strong? Because I always say to people, this is a long game. Don't play the short game. Relationships, you might be working with someone now, they might leave, and they will come back into your life 10 years down the track. It is a small, very connected world never burn a bridge.
1: (laughs) That's good advice. Hey, Michelle, I love those points. Number one was understand your mindset. Is it fixed or a mindset of growth? Are you willing to take on feedback? Number two was understand bias. Understand that it's not just other people that have bias, but you as well. And and being able to accept that and learn from that is a, a really important step. And thirdly, it was how you make progress and influence the things and the people around you. That's good advice. Did I get that summary right, Michelle?
0: You did. And the other piece though I would add though is how do you build relationships with people? How do you build long-term sustainable relationships? So it's really, if you think about it in an organization, so much of your success is down to the strength of your network. And you can only build a long-term sustainable network if you've got good integrity, if you are actually building a relationship where it's not just about what you get, but it's also about how much you give. So building strong stakeholder networks is the other one that I would add to that, that list. And connected mm-hmm. to that is the ability to negotiate and communicate effectively.
1: Well, that brings me to a beautiful segue, almost as if it was planned into the individual within an organisation. And now I know it's really difficult to separate the two. You've you've done it in your book, but of course there's a lot of crossover. We've talked about the individual now, someone who's beginning that very deliberate. And thought out journey towards leadership effectiveness. What about surviving and thriving in the workplace? The the idea of rising above the noise, being able to develop influence, to understand the context, and and I love that the point that you make about how hard it is when you first start. And you sh- you shared some lovely stories about yourself to influence and negotiate outcomes with people who are more senior than you. Let's. Talk a little bit about the organization. What are the struggles we have there, Michelle?
0: I think often what happens in organizations is people feel almost subjugated by hierarchy and they feel as though, well, that person's more senior than me, so I can't talk to them. And look, and there is no doubt that some organizations are still very hierarchical. But at the end of the day, if you've got a strong network, you'll understand who influences that person. And so there's ways to build connections with them. And if you can offer that person something of value, so if it might be information or some insights or something that's going to help them do their job more effectively, you will build a good relationship. And so if I go back to early in my career, I would often find interesting articles or interesting pieces of information, which I would share with people in the executive team or people who were more senior than me. So I was never shy about putting my name out there. And that's effectively one of the key parts of influence is you need to get known and you need to be known for something. And by doing things like that, it would then mean if new roles came up or interesting projects came up, if your name was floated, people would go, oh yeah, I've heard of her. Oh yeah, she does this. Oh yeah, she's good at that. Oh yeah, she'll be able to do this. So often what happens is people think, I just need to get to go to work and be good at my job and the work will speak for itself. Unfortunately, you do need to position yourself. You do need to make sure people are aware of what you're doing because if you're doing really great work, but no one knows it, you won't get noticed. And part of being influential is you do need to get noticed. You need people who are in positions where they're making decisions that can impact you. You need to have relationships with those people.
1: Jeez, Michelle, that is such great advice, but I can feel some of my listeners sitting there listening, cringing at the concept of putting themselves out there like that. If you were looking at this negatively, you could say, geez, that's almost manipulative. The idea that you would deliberately share articles with people who are more senior so that they you get noticed. It's really the the idea of managing up. But it's so true. I mean, you could go to work your whole life and deliver great stuff, but if you're in a large organization, that's not necessarily what's going to get you noticed. So I completely understand where you're coming from, but I'm just feeling some people cringe at the idea of that.
0: I would say to people, you need to be authentically you. And so mm-hmm. it may not be that for you. It may be something else, but the reality is in big organizations, you need to build relationships with people. If you just come to work every day and do your job and just sit in your little sort of corner of the world and don't branch out further you won't get noticed and you will get bypassed and the person beside you who has built the networks and built the relationships will get the roles and so it does make some people feel uncomfortable because they think well that's not fair I should just be good at my job and mm. I remember years ago when this is very early in my career one of my managers saying to me you know Michelle you can get to manager level by just being good at your job. But if you want to go any further, you need to know how to play the game. And I know what he meant by that. He didn't mean play the game in a political sense, but he meant play the game in terms of being politically aware as to what's going on in an organization. So I used to say to people, I don't play politics, but I know how to survive politics. And, so, <laughs> and there's a difference because you do see people at work who will play politics because they love it. They kind of see it as mm. it's kind of fun. Whereas I never found politics Mm. fun, but I was always consciously aware of what was going on around me. And if you stick your head in the sand and say, oh, this, you know, I'm just going to ignore all of that, you will do that to your detriment. And I've seen that happen to people. And so it's one of those things where I often say to people, you may not like this, but it's the reality of how organizations work. They are big systems. You need to understand how the system works. Because sometimes you need to find a way through the back door to get things done. And that doesn't mean you're underhanded and it doesn't mean you're unethical. And I can say, hand on heart, I never did anything through my career that I consider unethical or didn't have good intent associated with it. But getting through the back door meant I might know someone who I could ring to say, hey, I've just been told I need to go through this process, but is there some other way I can do this? because I'm on a time span. And people say, hey, yeah, actually, you don't necessarily need to do that. You can also do it like this. And that was because of networks.
1: It's just the reality, isn't it? If you speak the truth, Michelle, I absolutely am buying into what you're saying. You've got me convinced. There's no doubt about that. If you know that you've got something to offer an organization or a role, the reality is that the organism in which you operate means that you need to get noticed. And they're a big, huge, cumbersome place. Some of the places our listeners work and just doing your job really well is not going to get your notice. So there's nothing is not going to get yourself noticed. So there's nothing underhanded about the things that you just described. It's just the reality of large organizations.
0: And I also think when you're doing it, you don't do it in a way where you take other people's glory. And I've seen Mm. people do that where they'll take the glory. They won't share it amongst the team or worse, they'll steal other people's ideas and you go, wow, gee, that's not good. Or they'll act in a way where they're just not very nice people to be around. And that's why I always say you have to play the long game, not the short game, because I've seen people who have been highly political and not very nice to work with, and they have eventually blown themselves up. As someone once said to me, it's it's, it's corporate karma eventually they will get found out. And that's why you don't need to play the politics, but you do need to be aware of it because otherwise it's kind of like there's a naivety attached to it. They're big systems. You know, there will be some people you naturally gravitate towards. There'll be other people that you find harder to work with. And that's okay. I mean, we all find that. But for the people that you find harder to work with, sometimes it's about understanding where they're coming from. And I've often shared this example Other a person that I worked with many, many, many years ago, and we are now very good friends. But in a leadership team offsite, we had this situation where we had to give feedback to each other in terms of how we work together. And the feedback that she gave me was really harsh. And (laughs) and I I was quite taken aback because I thought we had a fairly good relationship. And the next day I caught up with her and had lunch with her and we went through it. And I said, look, I just need to tell you where I'm coming from and why I ask all the questions. And I said, I ask all these questions because I really admire the work you do. And I think I can learn from you because you think so differently to me. Whereas her interpretation of my questioning was that I didn't respect her work and that I was trying to find fault with what she was doing. But by me, right. having, but by me having that conversation with her, it completely, it, like, it cleared the air she could see mm. that my intent was very different to what she thought it had been and we went from having well what i thought was an okay relationship but what she obviously thought was not a good relationship <laughs> to having a really good strong solid relationship which is why i always say to people i could have walked away from that conversation the initial feedback session going well she's not going to really impact my career why would i bother but i thought well you know she's a peer of mine and she's in my network i you know, I want to find out whether I can make this relationship better. And I could, and it was such a good thing to do.
1: That's a great story, Michelle. And I love your advice about thriving and surviving in an organization. It's terrific stuff. And I love the way you've couched it. You, you, It is an authentic approach that you've just described. Like I said at the beginning, some of our listeners quite might've cringed at the idea of putting themselves out there, but that's just the reality. And And you can always do it with great ethics and values and in the right kind of spirit. Good advice. Now, Michelle, I'm going to let you off the hook first, but I've got a couple more questions. But there's a story behind these questions, actually. My longtime listeners will know that about 10 episodes ago, I changed my questions. I used to ask a set of four questions, but I changed them for no other reason than I got bored. I changed them to to three more that I thought were fabulous questions, but I actually got a fair bit of feedback from listeners to say, oh, I missed the old questions. Bring the old questions back. Unfortunately, I had recorded a whole bunch of episodes with the new questions. So this is, you're the first one. I'm going back to the original questions, Michelle. So these are designed, they're quick. We'll find out a little bit about you. And for listeners, we're going back to where it all started, folks. We're going to hear those original four questions again. Are you ready, Michelle?
0: Is this like back to the future?
1: It is Back to the Future, and this is all about learning about Michelle Gibbings, the person. We've just heard all about the professional, the consultant, the leadership expert. We're going to hear a little bit about you. Question number one, Michelle, what is your ideal Saturday night, a big party with lots of people you know, or an intimate dinner with your closest friends?
0: Intimate dinner with my closest friends.
1: That was quick. You were quick to answer that.
0: I'm very decisive. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> oh, we just learned two things about you then. All <laughs> right. Now here's another question. Are you more likely to get bogged down in the detail or caught daydreaming?
0: Bogged down in the detail.
1: Oh, really? That's yeah. great. What a wonderful admission. You know, I, I suspect that's the truth for, mo- for a lot of people, but not many people admit to that. Everyone thinks they're a big ideas dreamer. So that's great. I love your honesty there. All right. Next one. Are you a slave to rational thought process or do you make decisions based on emotion? It depends. On what?
0: Well, it depends on the circumstance because I have a very, very good sense of intuition and gut instinct. Mm. And Mm -hmm. I have used my gut instinct in the corporate world where I've said to people, wrong thing to do. And they'll say, why? And I'll say, gut instinct. I said, just trust me, don't do it. And- if they've gone against my gut instinct, it's turned out to be a bad thing. And if we've trusted my gut instinct, it's always turned out to be right. And then there are other times where I've taken a much more deliberate and a rational approach where I've gone through logically and I've looked at detail and information and data to make a decision. So I I think it does depend. And I often say that when I do a lot of work with people around decision-making processes, and I always say to people, there's a time for gut instinct and there's a time for Deliberate, rational process.
1: All right, good answer. I feel very informed there. All right, last question, Michelle. You're going on a road trip. Do you like to plan the route, book the hotels, and know exactly where you're going, or do you just get in the car and drive?
0: Isn't that interesting? I so would love to be the sort of person who can just get in the car and drive, but I'm the (laughs) (laughs) I'm the person who has it all planned out, and it's quite funny because I often say to my husband, "Don't you just one day?" Want to just rock up to the airport and go next flight to anywhere? <laughs> my husband always yeah. looks at me and goes, "Sorry, what happened to my wife?" <laughs> he goes, <laughs> "He goes, I can't imagine you ever doing that." So no, I am a definite planner. I love planning.
1: But you fantasise about just getting in the car and driving.
0: I do because there's something quite romantic. So you know, it's interesting because if I talk about how we would do holidays, we have certainly done holidays where. We've got a general sense of the route and where we're going, but we won't necessarily have every piece of accommodation booked. So I've done that before. Mm. But usually, particularly if we're busy, we will have more of it planned because it's just easier.
1: Absolutely. Well, that's awesome. That's a great answer. I love the backstory on that. So interesting. Michelle Gibbings, I have really enjoyed talking leadership with you tonight. Thank you so much for joining me on the Team Guru podcast.
0: My pleasure. It's been fun.
1: And that was Michelle Gibbings. Jeez, I feel so lucky to have on this podcast so many guests just like Michelle, articulate, energetic, and passionate who love to share their insights and experiences. Some pearls of wisdom there for taking control of our own journey from reflecting on ourselves as individuals, understanding the realities of life within an organization, and making it work for you. Michelle gave us four things to concentrate on as individuals. Number one, understand our mindset. Is it fixed or open to new information and growth? Number two, tapping into our own bias and the bias of the people around us. Number three, making progress through influence, being a talker and a listener. And number four, building long-term sustainable relationships. And how about her advice for getting noticed in your organization, putting yourself out there, being authentic, but being assertive, having the guts to step up and offer value outside of your role to people in more senior positions, people who may one day have the power to give you the big break you've been hoping for. Sitting back and being awesome at delivering work within your area of expertise is simply not enough in busy complex organizations. As always, I'll share the lessons I took from my conversation with Michelle on the podcast page for this episode. You'll find it on the Team Guru website. That's teams with an s.guru forward slash podcast. If you like this episode, share it with your friends, subscribe and rate us on iTunes. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud and Stitcher. And as always, you can email me directly, david at teams.guru. I'll be back next week for another episode on this, my mission to bring to life the theory and principles of leadership. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now.